Well, when I sent uh, Heather the lectionary scriptures for this Sunday, which you know we have a three-year lectionary and the, the scriptures that we're going to read are provided, and we, not everybody does that, we like to do that. So I sent them to her and she pointed out that either our gospel reading today or the Jonah text are both classic opportunities for us to bring out the old uh, Sunday school flannelgram or flannel graph. You guys remember that? Anybody remember how they, uh, maybe it was the precursor to Velcro, I don't know. But um, to my knowledge, flannel graph isn't as popular anymore. I'm sure there are churches probably using it somewhere. I imagine it might still be difficult to find a, uh, a, an ethnically appropriate Jesus that isn't just painfully, you know, an anachronistically Caucasian because he wasn't. Uh, it might also be difficult for those of you in the back if I decided to use it today for you to be able to see that in 2D and, you know, little tiny miniature drama unfolding up here. So I'm sorry, Heather, we're going to skip it. And I'm sorry to those of you who thought maybe I would just bring out a flannel graph. I, told, I, j- I joked about this to somebody this week, and they actually thought, wait, is he serious? Is he going to? But there, there is a good chance that you've heard the Jonah story, um, only heard the Jonah story as a children's lesson. It might be true for many of you, with or without the flannel graph, and most likely it was drastically simplified, understandably. But this is a very, very, very complex story. And even though the fate of a whole city is in view, and the subtext for this is the geopolitical relationship between uh, the Assyrians and Israel, it's complex, not for those reasons, but precisely because it turns the fine focus of the story, God's attention on just one heart, Jonas. That's really where the message lies. So it's about his heart, this small organ of the soul, loving and hating the wrong things too much and the right things too little. And that's where the big drama tends to begin. It's where, you know, from, from where it spreads. It's how cities like Nineveh and empires like, the, uh, like Assyria, they come to be. The outgrowth of the human heart. It's how Israel's story turns out to be so wildly turbulent. When it seems like God was so painfully clear. But the drama of the human heart is also how, we, how love and how beauty come into the world. And that's by God's design. It comes through us, and this is why this story is as powerful as it is complex, because God zooms in to this man and what he, this prophet, no less, is going through, how God sees him. If the story was, in fact, centered on the outcome of God's mission to uh, these urban Assyrians in Nineveh, then it would be a triumph, wouldn't it? It'd be a triumph. But because it's actually centered on Jonah's relationship to God, it's, it's a tragedy. It actually is a bit of a tragedy, at least as far as we know, because it ends quite abruptly with a question, and we'll talk about that. We don't know if, if Jonah's heart was finally renovated. We know he had at least one other prophetic mission that shows up in 2 Kings. It apparently turned out pretty well. But in this story, we don't know how it goes with Jonah, except when it's going badly for Jonah. We're just left with Jonah sunburned and sulking under the weight of a question from God, a heavy question. The question basically has to do with whether or not Jonah, who's God's man for this moment, whether or not he really cares about the things God cares about. 
And why is he doing what he's doing after all? Ending with that question, I think that the story puts us, the readers, kind of dangling in the middle of this yawning chasm between Jonah's hardened, angry self-focus and God's question mark. Where are you in this? As though it's interrogating us too. I think that's the point of the text. And in fact, you know, um, rabbinic midrash, the way they would tell this story, ultimately came back to Jonah in this way. Came back to the question. The questions, really. And I'll put them to you sort of as maybe extrapolated a little bit for us to think about what God was saying. I'll read the question a little bit later. But really, at the heart of the question is this. Can we learn to see through God's eyes? Can we allow what's hardened in us, often justifiably, to be softened? Is there a non-negotiable, listen, is there, ask yourself, is there a non-negotiable outer limit to how open you are to God? Is that limit conditional? Is it based on what you understand? Is it based on what you feel? Is it based purely on your life and how you interpret the world through it? Can we embrace the reality that life with all its twists and turns is a dynamic, ongoing process with the primary goal of drawing us to be with God, to know God before it moves us out for God? The problem was that Jonah's, uh, you know, his job as a prophet, at least as he understood it, was to do what all of Israel's prophets had always done, to speak to his own people about their right relationship to God. His job was to warn, it was to challenge, it was to encourage, and it was to deliver God's promises in an effort to redirect Israel's heart, Israel's worship and hope away from idols, above their circumstances, and back to the one true God. This is what Israel's prophets do. His vocation, his identity, it was all about the Jewish people. Full stop. Until it wasn't. And therein lies the problem with Jonah. Shockingly, God was calling a Galilean prophet to pagan Nineveh the capital city of the Assyrians, who were a powerful and expansionist empire. The rivalry and the conflicts between the Assyrians and and the Israelites were well documented throughout the Old Testament. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. That's actually in Jonah's time. And it led to the exile of many of Israel's inhabitants. It led to the dissolution of the kingdom. They were not only brutal, but they had this policy of deporting conquered people, resettling them somewhere else, diffusing the culture of people, scattering the cultures, preventing potential uprisings. So with good reason, Jonah hated them. Hated them. The strange fact that God was calling Israel's prophet to Nineveh was appalling. It probably would have upset you too. Because here's the rub. It meant that Yahweh God was apparently doing for Nineveh what he had always done for Israel. He was warning them of imminent destruction, which meant he was giving them a chance. 
a chance to repent, just like he always did for Israel. Jonah already knew this. We find out that out later, that he knew what God would, he knew that if he's sending me, hmm. Apparently, God didn't hate the Assyrians. How dare he? In chapter 1, we hear a familiar Old Testament refrain when these decadent cities would come into view, Sodom, Gomorrah, and many others, Babylon. It says, uh, the, the evil in Nineveh has come up to me, the Lord says. In other words, he hears the outcry of those who are suffering in what we find out is this sprawling city. It's going to take Jonah three days to walk through it. In an ancient time, they had 120,000 people. That's like modern-day Los Angeles. No thank you, Jonah says. No thank you, and he heads the opposite direction to Tarshish, sailing to the end of the known world. It's as far as you can go, as far as he imagines he can go. He's just going to get on a boat and go there. Jonah has a, a dramatic flair to him. He's throwing a, a temper tantrum. He's all in with this. But this is more than just a refusal to do what God is calling him to do. Listen to verse 3. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, it says, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Twice in the course of one verse. Jonah is done with God. He doesn't just dislike the mission. He's done with God. If Nineveh is where his faithfulness and devotion are pointing, then he's done with being faithful and devoted. Done. He doesn't want to be where the Lord is anymore. Not this Lord doing this thing for these people. So he catches the next boat to the end of the world as far as, you know, as, far as he can get from God's presence. But things unfold sort of Gilligan's Island style and they're caught in this sudden tempest. It happens quick. The ship's crew are convinced that this came out of nowhere, and so that says something. Something, something or someone is to blame for such an out-of-nowhere storm. And Jonah quickly admits, confesses, he tells his story, he takes the blame. He suggests that they throw him overboard. And it's not too much at this point to say that Jonah is suicidal. And we'll actually hear him say it later. He's that angry. His identity has gone into nowheresville because of what God is asking him to do. The circumstances of Jonah's flight from Jonah's God, they, oh, it overwhelms the sailors. Could this be true? That at first they just go, we'll just row harder. <laughs> just work harder. They don't want a hand in taking the life of this man that God has called. But things get worse. And they cry out to the Lord in remorse for what they're about to do. At Jonah's urging, by the way. And finally, we know that Jonah's thrown in and the sea instantly calms. Verse 16 tells us the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and put their faith in Him. They made vows. And I think this is an important detail right here to stop on. Think about this. Even in his escapist disobedience, Jonah is an instrument of salvation for both the natural and the spiritual salvation of these pagans. 
Jonah did not get on the boat to save these men. But Jonah's on the boat to save these men. Now he's off the boat to save these men. Jonah has rejected God, but God has not rejected Jonah. Jonah has tried to cast off the mantle of his call, but God will not cast him off. It's its own sermon. Maybe that's the one you needed to hear today. So he's sinking in the deep. He's swallowed by the notorious fish. And there in its belly, what should have been his tomb, he prays what we heard today in chapter 2. And we could summarize the theme of the prayer this way. I went down and you brought me up. It was deep. It was dark. I was tangled up. I was closed in. I was ebbing away. I called you and you answered me. I remembered that you are a Savior. A Savior for me. The prayer is basically a petition for the very thing Jonah was fleeing. The presence of the Lord. He needs him there. In the belly of the beast, he is desperate for it. The prayer is is framed even here for our reading. Obviously, being narrated back in the story, it's framed in the past tense. More like the narrator is bringing the vivid details of Jonah's struggle forward as a kind of psalm to echo through the ages for us to be able to say. And as it turns out, the story of Jonah is always read at the end of Yom Kippur, the holiest day in Judaism. A day that focuses on repentance. Remembering Jonah's story is actually how the Jews break their day-long fast on this day of repentance. And I wish I had time to say more about this, but suffice it to say, they recall Jonah's story as a cautionary tale about obeying God or disobeying God. Jonah doesn't stay in the belly of the beast, but sadly, the man vomited out on the beach turns out to not be a changed man after all. To be sure, he goes to Nineveh. He becomes the poster boy for religious compulsion. His obedience is anchored in his head, maybe. It's anchored in his hands, what he's supposed to do, but it's not coming from the heart. It's certainly not coming from his sense of the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3 begins, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So then for three days, Jonah walks throughout the city and he's declaring 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's doing it. He's saying it. And chapter 5 tells us that the Ninevites believed. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast. From the greatest to the least, it says, they put on clothes for mourning. And when Jonah's warning reached the king, it says... He rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth too, and he sat down in the dust. This royal, what have we done sort of moment. And in his decree, he, he he says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways, let them give up their violence. Who knows, maybe God will relent, and with compassion, he'll turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And verse 10 tells us, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil, he relented. He did not bring this calamity and destruction upon them. Happy ending, right? Not so much. Because again, as I said, the story abruptly zooms back in on Jonah. This is where it wants to take us. Chapter 4 begins this way. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became very angry. 
He's wrestling with God, right, in what's going on. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? He's just come out of the belly of the whale, and I think that's, to to a great degree, what's pregnant within those terms, no pun intended. Within that question, is it right for you to be angry? By this time, Jonah has moped off to the east of the city. He's built a little shelter there for himself to see if maybe it will be destroyed after all. Look at it from afar. And while he's pouting and crossing his fingers for a little hellfire and brimstone, God intervenes with him again quietly. Quietly. He makes this lush vine in one day grow up quickly. And it enhances the aesthetics and the climate control of this little shanty that Jonah has built. It makes things better. And Jonah feels better. And things are better. And verse 6 says, Jonah was very happy about the plant. It's the little things, right? Some of you will go home and talk to your plants today. He was happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So then comes this big question I mentioned. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight. Should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? They're lost. And by the way, there are lots of animals there too. You're so concerned about plants. And there it is. Two observations for us to make. First is obvious. Jonah has personally experienced God's mercy and salvation when he did not deserve it. While he was on his way down, he was brought up, yet he doesn't want the same for others. Those those that he deems unworthy of it. He has his reasons, and they are fixed. But the second observation is this. Had Jonah stayed up close instead, instead of moping off, He would have seen how the city was changing. I mean, we can speculate, right? How they were repenting, what it meant, how the culture was shifting, how families and individuals were yielding to God, how those crying out in desperation to God in advance of it were now finding relief. But Jonah only wants to look from afar. This illuminates, I think, an important truth about the gospel. Listen, if we keep our opponents at a distance, they are only an abstraction. Opponents. They are only them. They. 
They are the oppressors and we are the victims. They are the unrighteous and we are the righteous. And this is, I think, an important word for us in our polarizing day. I made a recent friend in the mountain biking community who probably fits just about every stereotype we might have of the outspoken, atheist, transgressive, progressive. He's kind to me and I like him. But it's also clear that he wants a world that I do not want. A world that is, in many ways, it's bad for people, it's bad for families, it's bad for communities. A culture that summarily rejects the past as a bastion of black ignorance, just darkness. A society that is quietly dangerous for children in the womb and that treats the body as something divorced from the soul. A world still trapped in a zero-sum power play. Trading one form of fundamentalism for another. That's not a world I want. There's also a lot of good that he wants too. But you have to look closer. You have to listen. You have to set up shop in somebody's life sometimes. There's a longing in him for something lasting. While his career is failing, and it is, and his marriage has become fragile, and it is, and parenting is way harder than he thought it would be, because it is, there's this deep insecurity about his own worth that just dribbles out after a few drinks. There's pain in his past. There are obvious troubling questions trying to hide just in these little skinny shadows of his confidence. From a distance, he looks like just another them. But up close, he is one for whom Jesus came near. Because if he came near for me, he also came near for him. Jesus came near enough to feel the pain of sinners and to suffer the kind of civilizations that we make. Apparently the God of Jonah, the God we serve, can handle the tension between the awfulness of the Assyrians and his desire to include them in his salvation. That is bonkers to me. But it's true of our God. Jonah knew it actually. And that's why he had to get away. He couldn't hold the tension. He couldn't stand that idea. Jesus knew it, and that's why he had to come. Apart from this story and that tiny aside in 2 Kings, Jonah comes up again only from the mouth of Jesus, who sees himself in the story, or rather, he sees that story in himself. In Matthew 6, and more briefly in Luke 11, Jesus is being pressed by the religious leaders for a sign. They want something to prove that he has the authority to be doing and saying what he's doing and saying. And Jesus responded sharply. He said, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then it gets real hard. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This is his word to his people. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What does he mean? Well, Jonah crying out from the belly of the whale was resurrected, in a sense. Reluctantly cooperative in the life, uh, you know, for the life of the Ninevites who repented, by the way. But Jesus, agonizing in the garden and crying out for another plan, willingly went through death and out the other side 
for the life of the whole world. His own leaders rejected him, but he has nevertheless brought salvation to the ends of the world. And I think the irony, even the comparison, is rich. The Pharisees, to whom Jonah belongs, and belong to Jonah, they are Jonah. Heart of heart, stiff of neck, unable to allow for a way other than their own. They prefer a God better kept at a distance with them. Lest people think Him too gracious, or too merciful, too ready to forgive, too intent on tearing down the dividing walls in our hearts that end up rising higher and wider in the cultures we make. And let me close with this. We're not prophets, not the Jonah kind, but we are priests. We are called to stand between the world and God, near to God, but also near to the world. Like Jonah, we as people of faith, we stand in this unique place between God and the world, and it's our relationship to God and to His mercy, which we have received. That's our growing knowledge of God, of who He is and has been to us and therefore wants to be to others. And our delight in Him that ultimately should shape the quality of our relationship to others. It's the presence of God in our lives that aligns our mission with the heart of God for the world. Even for the Ninevites in your life or on your near horizon. So I'll leave you with a question or three or four in the spirit of God's question to Jonah. And I hope that you'll hear them in the spirit of God's patience with Jonah and with you and the world he loves. God's intimate concern for your heart. I already posed them, and I just want to say them again. Can we learn to see through God's eyes? Can we allow what's hardened in us, often justifiably, to be softened? Is there an outer limit to our openness to God? Is it conditional? Is it based on what we understand, know, and feel? Can we embrace the reality that life, with all its twists and turns, is an ongoing process with the primary goal of drawing us to be with God and to know God all the more before we're out there doing anything for God? And I can only imagine that in some way, a small way or maybe a big way, that applies to all of us. So let me pray for us as we try to make this story of Jonah and of Jesus our own. Lord, help us to see the world through your eyes, to see our world, our friends, our enemies, our spouse, our children, our in-laws, our co-workers, our city, our nation, and our world through your eyes. It's so hard to do. We're so focused on ourselves. But Lord, you're focused on us too. So move toward us, Lord, in your way, whether it's quietly or whether it's with the voice of many waters or of thunder or of all the things we heard today in that psalm that we read together. Move in us, O oh Lord, and do the work that we can't do for ourselves. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.